0: If you want 2024 to be your best running year, it is essential you have a customised training plan tailored to your race schedule and ability level. That's why I'm pumped to have Motive sponsoring the podcast. You can use the app for free, but if you want two months of premium access, you can use code SMARTER2. Sign up at mymotive.com. The link will be in the show notes. On today's episode, part two of our Shockwave discussion with Benoit Matthew. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast. The podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life. But more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. I haven't really had a part two episode uh, before, so I don't really know what to say here. Um, we welcome back Benoit Matthew because uh, our interview went for an hour and 15 minutes and decided to break it up into two parts. And you'll already be familiar with Benoit. Um, in part two, we delve into answering your questions and delving into Shockwave more specifically around conditions. And so I hope you enjoy. We sort of, um, we sort of had an abrupt finish to... Part one, because I just split into two and just put into two episodes. And so we dive straight back in. So here is Benoit Matthew. I did uh, propose this interview to the patrons of the podcast and if they had any questions and Jill asks specifically around plantar fasciitis. Uh, I think we covered a lot of this. She asked, is it effective? You, you've mentioned yes. Um, is it painful? Yes. Uh, are there any precautions like post therapy? And can she asks, can I exercise afterwards?
1: Okay. That's a great point is with the runners. The key thing with this is um, we have to be very clear with their advice with with runners, because when the pain is less, they're more likely to overdo it. So let's assume that as a runner, she has done the whole package, you know, good footwear advice, you know, not running on bare foot or a a loading program like Rathlif loading program. She's having all those things. So, so my key advice would be is generally uh, let's, let's put, the rehab into two phases so let's imagine that she's getting uh, three sessions of shockwave let's look at that three weeks and let's look the 12 weeks after so I always try to separate that two segments so let's look at the first segment when she's having treatment so in the first segment uh, depends on her irritability for example if it's very there's a common question I'm asked is do I stop people running during that three weeks or sometimes so the answer is for me, it depends on the irritability. So if you get a runner who uh, gets pain only after 40 minutes of running, there is no need for me to stop her from running. So I might ask her to continue running with you know uh, 20, 25 minutes. But generally, I advise her not to run for 48 hours. Uh, so suppose she had treatment on uh, Monday, I will suggest her not to run like Monday and Tuesday. And during that whole three, four weeks, I generally stop any speed work. Speed work irritates plantar fasciitis, no speed work and uh, try to have a bit of uh, appropriate shoes Uh, if you go for more minimalistic shoes it put more strain so generally I advise her to have that cushion like either heel inserts or something to reduce the cushioning um, and then uh, stop uh, you know and then to stop the speed work for uh, during that session uh, and then start the loading Um, and then once she finishes the course of uh, shockwave that three weeks then I start pushing her really hard. So I don't really push people hard while I'm giving shockwave because your body is trying to remodel. It doesn't make any sense trying to push and remodel at the same time. And anyway, it's only three weeks. So uh, they they might still continue, you know, two two days of running, but they might not be doing a lot of speed work, a lot of plyometrics. I totally stop all, all plyometrics during that three weeks. So no speed work, no plyometrics, you know, try to keep the symptoms without flaring up. And once you've completed the course, anyway, you've got 12 weeks. Anyway, after that, So there's no need to rush so because you're going to slowly push that tissue remodeling and to start the rehab and all the sort of work. So so you need to put that into two phases, during the shockwave phase and post-shockwave phase. And both are equally important. Yeah,
0: And I'm glad that those expectations are laid down as well, that in these first three weeks, we're going to have to back off a lot of the mileage and speed and that work. Would you say that that applies to other tendons? So the Achilles, the patella tendon and the proximal hamstring?
1: Yeah. So the main thing is high impact work. So for example, you know, runners want exercise, which is, uh, so even they can go on the same day to the gym and do a bit of bike work, a bit of cross trainer, a bit of machines, uh, you know, a bit of pool work, totally fine, you know, but anything which is high impact and because, you know, tendons are quite sensitive to speed and the high impact. So, uh, I advise not to do like aggressive sort of loading during that phase where they are remodeling and trying to create those physiological changes. So, um, and the question of people always want a black and white yes or no answer, like whether I should run or not. It pretty much based on the two factors, I would say, is irritability of the symptoms and how much they can run without pain. So if you've got an Achilles patient or a tendon patient who can run 50 minutes, 60 minutes, there's absolutely no reason to stop them running. On the other side, you've got somebody with plantar fasciitis who's hobbling in the morning. It takes them 40 minutes to settle down. It makes no sense to continue running and shock at the same time. So uh, for me, I think the irritability of the symptoms, especially the morning or 24 hours after, and how much they can run is the two factors. So in some patients, I'll totally stop running during the three weeks. But in many patients, I'll still keep them running with some modification. So reducing the distance, stopping totally stopping the speed work and the plyometrics, for that three weeks and then gradually introduce them later because you, you're trying to, that's one of the main problems of giving shockwave before an event because you don't have time for that. So if you've got a marathon coming or a half marathon coming in four weeks, you don't have time for all those things because you're trying to, you can't stop all those things. So so many runners, when they come to me, I say to them, come back to me once you've finished the event and when you can give me 12 weeks, when you can give me time, come back to me and then we can do shockwave. Right now, is not the time. So it's, you're trying to plan your treatment so that when you can really get a more uh, long-term response rather than a f- quick fix, which generally always disappoints everyone. Yeah,
0: and it does seem like it is a patient process and a, a lot of runners don't really have or want the patience. <laughs> and it does yeah. seem that the the exercise rec- or guidance that you're giving within those three weeks are just based on clinical justification, based on the nature of the symptoms and based on the the person, what their level of capacity currently is like, what their strength is currently like, what their yeah. running capacity is currently like, and just using your expertise to uh, coach them on the, the exercise requirements within those three weeks.
1: Yeah. I think with runners is we always want to keep them running. Even... If you can let them run two days a week, they'll be very happy. At least they're doing something. So 100% of patients, I will make some modification. It'll be a distance. It'll be a speed. It'll be some variables I'll say not to do. For example, uh, in, in my proximal hamstring tendinopathy patients, uh, I will strictly say not to do any hills or speed for at least six to eight weeks because it tends to flare up. So certain tendons are different. With the patellar tendon, uh, I would say not to do a lot of downhill running. You know, downhill makes a lot of strain on that. Uh, and achilles and foot most foot and ankle it generally speed work speed work uh generally makes it irritate more and uh and especially if they made any transition to more minimalistic type of uh shoes where you know they're going into more loading as well so obviously you know uh, i might link up with the msk podiatrist who can support on that journey as well so i think you know we know that number one you know, treatment for runners is load management and education. There is no different whether you have shockwave or not. So we have to manage that, uh, you know, appropriate load, educating them on the pain levels. So again, we don't want to be zero out of 10. They can still do stuff with three or four out of 10, but we don't want to flare up. We don't want that 24 hours for data uh, uh, response. So I think that's one of the reasons I like the person giving shockwave to also be managing the rehab. So in many centers, I see people go shockwave somewhere. They get a different advice. And they go to rehab, somebody else, they get a different advice. And then it's a bit of confusion for the therapist. So ideally, uh, or if you're giving, they should have communication between the two professionals. So if somebody is giving a shockwave, they should know what the rehab person is doing at the same time, because otherwise the patient is going to get a bit of a different information and lead to uh, aggravation because they might some therapists will say, fine, you can do everything. And then the next day, next week, you see them, they're in bad flare-up because they just went and did like uh, uh, 15 minutes of plyometric or some speed work and and body everything flares up. So we need to have the continuity and clear message when we give shockwave and the rehab. So ideally, you want the same person or if, if it's a different person, we need to communicate and make sure that we are not giving mixed message to the runner that you can do anything you want uh, because the idea is we want to get them full function, but at the same time, we don't want to flare-up because... If you flab them up and make them worse, they're going to lose confidence in the treatment. They're going to say, OK, I had shockwave. It made me worse. I I hear this quite a bit. They say, I had shockwave. It made me worse. Uh, What did the therapist tell you? No clear advice on the uh, post-treatment advice. So if you're giving shockwave, it's very important to give a very clear advice on post-treatment, what to do, what not to do. Mostly for runners, it's telling them what not to do which is equally important than telling them what to do because if you don't tell them clearly they're going to overdo it you can always you can always assume that in runners you know if you say just listen to your body they won't listen they're just going to you know because once they finish the treatment they're going to feel less pain then they feel everything is cured because a lot of runners think they're cured you don't cure a tendon in two sessions you know you know it takes time so i i down you know I downplay the expectation straight away and say it's starting the healing it takes 12 weeks Uh, let's rebuild it Uh, now is the time not to overdo it you know let's build up slowly we're looking at a more long-term option so as long as we make it clear that it's not a quick fix uh, they're more likely to listen so it's up to us to educate them on uh, the long term Uh, many runners are very disappointed when they hear me saying it takes three plus 12 which is like basically it's four months isn't it Three to four months, so it's a long time. People think you're going to have shockwave, and in two weeks you're back running full capacity. And if you look on certain websites, that's the message which has been shown, and that's not the truth, really, because you know, if you, if anybody can fix tendons in two weeks, they should get the Nobel Prize. You know, that's <laughs> because that's that's a million that's a million dollar question. Nobody can, you know, that's that's the holy grail in tendon rehab. Is this takes time. There's no, you can't. The one of the things is, I you know, you can't speed up nature. There's nothing, you know, it, it takes time. And uh, whatever morality you, you, you might. So it's like, you know, when I, <laughs> another silly example, I say, like, you know, when I, when I came last year, I think two years I came to teach in Australia. It's like when I went there, you have two options going to Australia. You can either go to the business, you know, first class or you can go into the normal economic class. But I still land up at the same time. The, you know, I'm not going to go quicker just because I pay more money and go in the first class. So that's exactly the same as the shockwave. When you have shockwave you feel less pain and you can load more quicker but the healing is exactly the same so we we are doing any you know people disservice saying like you heal faster with shockwave there's no physiological evidence it does that uh you know we, we we're making them appear quicker because they have less pain the timelines yeah. are exactly yeah. the same lines you know
0: the overall experience is better so just the same yeah. as flying first class and yeah. to flying economy yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah it feels nicer and you feel it's quicker you slept well and you feel better but you you both of this land at the same time that's what exactly is so a lot of times you see some adverts saying oh you heal better you heal faster that's basic physiology you can't speed up nature really it's like you know like nine months of pregnancy there are a few laws you can't you know you can't break anything it's the same so as long as people accept that Um, but I think they're a bit disappointed on session one but they're very thankful that you've been very honest in that and that it's going to uh, be in the long term and what I think this is This is a really crucial point. I find Uh, it's a bit strange, but I think one of the reasons is people seem to, runners tend to buy rehab better when they have a gadget or something with it. So when you say 12 weeks of rehab, they don't buy it. When you say shockwave plus 12 weeks of rehab, nearly all of them buy it. So it seems like they want the best effect. So I guess that's the same with surgery as well. A lot of times people follow rehab protocols best after injections or after surgery or after shockwave. When When you put an external object your adherence and your compliance is better. So I feel that's one of the reasons I find the shockwave helps my patients because patients seem to listen better when I say, "Okay, we're going to give shockwave, but then you're going to do 12 weeks of rehab." They say, "Okay, that's fine," you know. Whereas if you say it before, they don't seem to follow it. So I guess it's a buying tool. People buy rehab better when you say you're going to give shockwave for the pain relief. So it's a, it's as, you know as a good therapy. And one of the things I learned as you get more experience is you have to be a good salesman to your patients. You have to sell your rehab. And sometimes having the shockwave helps you to sell your rehab better. And they seem to follow, you know, because you can have the best rehab, but if they don't do it, you know, you're not going to get the results. So it's it's one way of selling your rehab to them to make sure they, they do it. So for me, it's a simple tool to reduce the pain and then get that rehab back to the gym, back loading, back doing your plyometric drills, and then back to what they will enjoy. So it's a, it's a good adjunct in a short-term journey. And it's very quick. You know, if you're talking about three sessions, three minutes, it's nine-minute treatment, isn't it? It's nothing. When you talk somebody who's been suffering for uh, one or two years, nine minutes of treatment is a very small price if 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 they, it can help them to get them going, especially if they failed rehab. So as I, as I mentioned very clearly before, you know it's not good practice to give shockwave unless they have exhausted.
0: You aren't a template, so your training shouldn't be either. The Motive app takes training plans written by the best coaches in the world, then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities and goals. It's such a good idea, which is why it is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world and has thousands of age group athletes signing up every month with a near perfect 4.9 star rating. It will even plan triathlons, cycling events, duathlons and other events if you're branching away from running races. You can use the app for free for as long as you want, with the premium access being just $19.99 per month. But if you use code SMARTER2, you can get two months of full premium access. Sign up through their website, mymotive.com, and make 2024 your best year yet.
1: A good 12 weeks of progressive loading program.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of the challenges as a therapist is to try and change your language to... Increase adherence and compliance of the program as much as you can. <laughs> if we yeah. can backpedal just a little bit and go back to these patron questions, because Justin asks, again, with plantar fasciitis, if the heel bursa is involved, does it respond just as well?
1: No, no. Unfortunately, if any bursa, for example, if you're dealing with uh, insertion laculus, like, you know, if you have retrocalculus bursa, bursa, any fluid collection doesn't do well with the uh, shockwave because it gets dissipated, the energy gets. So if you've got somebody with a fat pad impingement, if you've got somebody with pre-pattler bursitis, the common question people ask is trochanteric bursitis. It works, keep it simple, it only works on tendons and muscles. So any fluid collection is not a good option to give a shockwave. Again, we need to know why they're getting fluid and things like that. So if you if your ultrasound or report comes back saying it's got retrochanal bursitis, then um, shockwave might not be the option. So, you know, uh, again, so I was bashing up um, you know, on steroid injection a few minutes ago. But again, you know, nothing is black and white. So one condition where steroid works really well is in retrocalcaneal bursa done under ultrasound guidance injection. So if you've got a small collection of fluid, which is inflamed, so you can put a bit of steroid within, uh, uh, as I said, steroid is bad within the tendon. But mm. if you've got some bursitis around it, uh, I don't see any harm in putting a little bit of ultrasound guided injection into the bursa uh, to reduce the inflammation. So again, you know, it's not black and white uh, saying all steroids is bad. If you've got a localized bursitis, uh, shockwave is just going to irritate it. But maybe if you've tried everything else, you've taken anti-inflammatory, you know, all that, there might be a role by discussion with the sports sports doctors or orthopedic surgeon where they might do a guided stuff for the bursa things. So it's, the answer to your question is, any bursitis, it's not an indication for um, it's not an indication for a shockwave.
0: Yeah. And all those who don't have that medical background, that bursa is just like that fluid filled sack for lubrication. That is not part of the tendon at all. It's not part of the structure. So when we say that injections have the potential to do damage to a tendon, if injected straight into the tendon, if there is a bursa involved, we're injecting into the bursa, which isn't a part of the tendon at all. So it can still be quite safe and still be quite effective.
1: Yeah. And again, uh, more and more, we are going more into guided injection. So if you want to be accurate, it makes sense. You go to somebody who is knowledgeable in in providing ultrasound guided injection. So you know exactly that you're not sticking the needle into the tendon, but putting it right into the the bursa where you reduce, you minimize your risk of uh, complications.
0: Yeah, so they, they're they using the ultrasound as well at the same time they're doing the injection so they can see on the screen, okay, the needle's going into the bursa now and then they inject what they need to inject rather than just using blind faith and just saying, okay, here's the bursa and um, just using their eyes just to um, yeah. hopefully hit the bursa. Hopefully, yeah. The last question I have or the last topic I want to delve into, I see a lot of people with proximal hamstring tendinopathy and yeah. they are ones that get very chronic, very debilitating. A lot of the runners are very desperate and they they want clarity. They want control. What can we do? You've said that proximal hamstring tendinopathy can be effective. Well, shockwave can be effective. Is there any considerations we can do in that three-week phase or are there any um Proximal hamstring tendinopathy specific instructions that you can have for people to uh, increase the the effectiveness.
1: Yeah, so I think proximal hamstring is quite a funny area because it's quite deep, you know, quite you know hard to get in. So some practical point of view is it's quite an awkward awkward treatment to give when you give on that. So I always have a chaperone when if if I'm treating a patient because you have to get straight into the sitting bone. And I normally bring them to the edge of the table so that open up the space because it's pretty much medial to the sitting bone. Now, the few considerations. So a small group, I would say quite a significant group of patients with proximal hamstring also get a bit of irritation of the nerve as well. So if you've got somebody who have a bit of sciatic nerve type of irritation, from my experience, they don't seem to respond with shockwave. Anything with nerve don't seem to do well. So if you've got somebody who's complaining of bit of pins and needles, bit of burning pain, sharp pain, Maybe shockwave is not the best option there because it's they're having a combination of tendon pain and no pain, you know, because because it's so close to the sciatic nerve as well. So, and when you're giving the shockwave, if you look at the anatomy, it's sort of uh, the sciatic nerve is around three to four centimeters lateral to the um, uh, tuberosity. So, when you're giving shockwave, always always aim medially. So don't go laterally. And obviously, if a patient says when you're giving tr- when you're giving treatment, I had I've seen two patients actually where they had raging sciatica after they have completed a course of wave, where the patient uh, complained uh, having pins and needles while they're having treatment. So if a patient says they're getting pins and needles, you just stop. Maybe you're not on the right spot. You're maybe you're on the nerve. You should not get pins and needles or numbness. So again, best not to choose patients who have a neurogenic involvement with the sciatic nerve. That's the key thing. Second thing is exposing it so that you can really hit the bone. And you have to hit. you have to dig in. There's no... It's one of the most. I would say it's one of the most technically challenging um, uh, shockwaves. The proximal hamstring because it's intimate, uh, it's awkward, uh, and you have to really uh, get uh, to bang on the bone as well. Well, another thing to remember here is is once I give that, let's imagine that I'm giving three or four weeks of shockwave. You, I find it makes a big difference to reduce the sitting time. So uh, direct pressure on that. So I usually ask them to use like this sort of you know wedge shaped uh you know like uh what you use for coccyx that sort of cushion you know where you have the cut in to reduce that especially when they if they involve a lot of driving and things like that to use the cushioning on that so they're not sitting and every 20 to 30 minutes to stand up you know uh not to have the direct pressure so that's really important so the first thing is you know desensitize the region not to put direct pressure and a lot of times they go on the internet and start stretching the hamstring and that just irritates things so Well, you're having shockwave, there's no point in doing your hamstring stretches or putting a foam rolling right on onto the bone. We don't want that. You know, we just want to, you know, desensitize the region. So a lot of time is education on reducing the We don't want to say like sitting is harmful. But the way I say to them, you're just sensitizing the tissue around it. So uh, use a cushion, uh, you know, surface, try not to sit on hard surfaces, try to take breaks every 20 to 30 minutes. Um, and, uh, you know, also try not to overstretch it. So I think the main thing is desensitizing that sort of area by not direct pressure. And because a lot of people feel like, uh, you know, putting a needle in or dry needling and you might feel a short term benefit, but that irritates that more and more. So uh, reducing that direct pressure, reducing the sitting. And as I said before, stopping totally all hills and speed. I usually stop that for a good six to eight weeks. No hills, no speed, uh, but they can continue with the flat. That's fine. Uh, the hilt and speed usually irritates that. So I think you have to be very, very strict. Um, let me give an example on lower limb. The one where where I'm very, you know, aggressive in my treatment is petal tendon. petal tendon can handle it very well. So petal tendon doesn't seem to, so I'm very aggressive. Uh, I'm not too worried about flare ups In the two other areas where I'm very, very sensitive, where I'm, I'm, I give them very, you know, very uh, sh- slow approach is proximal hamstring tendon. And of achilles, those two areas are very, they take much longer than you think. So clear advice, taking the time, Insertion achilles, they also get flat up quite badly. So those two areas, um, I'm not, it's definitely not easy, but as long as you, um, f- number one, don't irritate the nerve, you know, make sure that, you know, your NSME, Uh try to go always medial rather than lateral, uh, reduce the sitting time, uh, best not to stretch it. We know that stretching doesn't, you might feel good for a minute or two, but it doesn't do any much harm and definitely stop the hills and speed. And uh, definitely, it's not an easy one. So normally, most tendons, if you, if it, when I, when somebody comes to my, with runners, so most lower limb tendon, I say three to six months. If it's an Achilles, petler Plantar fasciitis, I say three to six months. But proximal hamstring, I say six to nine months. That's what, you know, even with all my experience, I've not found a hack to make it quicker. It just takes time, you know. It takes six to nine months for you to really get a good results. There's nothing, there's no shortcuts there. As long as they know it's a long long drawn process and we need to decent so i think the way to progress would be is really make them tolerant to sitting you know uh, avoid local irritation and then build up the strength and then build up the volume and then keep the speed and the hills the last so it's a very slow progression so very hard to buy in people for that six to nine months but you know it takes time so a lot of people what they do is they go to therapist's Try for one month; it's not working. They jump to the next therapist. So I see the sort of people go and do this conveyor belt. You know, I see this sort of they've seen three therapists. They come to me, and then they're disappointed because they thought I'll fix them in one month, uh, and then they go on. So I'm ass- I'm sure you must have seen people where they the runners they go on in this sort of they see six therapists because they don't want to hear that it's going to sit here f- take such a long time. But in my in my experience, uh, you know, it takes that good six to nine months. Would you agree, or have you found a hack? Um, oh,
0: I haven't found the hack, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> the yes. uh, I think that's uh, very good advice though. In those three weeks, we're kind of desensitizing the proximal hamstring with sitting modifications, avoiding stretching, just taking it easy. But uh, when you get into that 12-week phase, we're slowly reintroducing some levels of loading. We're probably still yes. avoiding Uh, a lot of stretching but we're seeing if you can slowly start to implement more and more sitting more and more strength work a little bit more running but like you said that the real powerful stuff the the plyometrics the speed work the hills that comes at the very end of rehab once you're able to tolerate once you have a really big base of uh load tolerance and strength
1: And, and the key thing would be is not to change more than one variable at a time so if you want to increase the distance, do that. Don't try to do the distance and the speed and the hills at the same time. The common mistake I see. The best way to get injured as a runner is trying to change two variables at the same time. So, you know, for me, I want to build up at least 30 to 40 minutes of uh, flat running with good strength, you know, a good hamstring control and things like that, general lower limb strength. And then for me, I think uh, for the way I always have done it is uh, b- build up the volume first, uh, then go to speed, you know, control speed work, and then the hill's the last. With hip patients, I always keep the hill's the last. And that seems to work for me, uh, you know, because trying to do everything at the same time is just flags up things. So as long as you've got a sensible progression, you, you're you not going to flat up. And again, you know, even with the best laid plans, uh, I said to my patients, I'm going to see you for eight months. I expect at least three flat ups. That's normal. So uh, always pre-warn them that even with the best rehab, uh, it's just getting a cold or a flu. You know, you're going to get a little bit of uh, occasional like a sore throat or something like that. So you are bound to have a flare up on the journey. For me, I expect at least three flare ups in that six to nine months. Uh, and then the important thing is always always give every patient, especially with tendopathy, a flare up plan. They know exactly one, two, three, four, five things to do. So for them, it's not a shock anymore. So they know that if I get a flare up, so a simple flare up plan could be you know reducing your stress is you know taking painkillers for three to four days. You know, uh, getting into the pool, reducing the sitting time, using a cushion, going to some cross trainer, taking a bit of easy on the running for a week and then going back. So a very simple flat-up plan can make a huge difference. So they know that it's like a, an asthmatic has got an or know, a, 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 somebody with an allergy has got an EpiPen. So they know that they have a backup. So every runner should have the flat-up plan because they know that it's going to happen. And we try to make them accept that it's part of normal recovery because a lot of people freak out when they get a flat-up and say, oh, God, it's all back to zero i was so i was doing so well and then i just screwed up by these things i said that happens you know you're going to have one or two flat ups so not to worry just you know calm it down and just back you go on the bandwagon and you can start rehab so i try to downplay the flat ups and say uh, i say to them on session one you know i could do it very very slowly but i can't prevent you from getting a flat up it's going to happen so let's get prepared for it so that you have a pr- flat up plan is it something you give to your patients like a flat up plan for worse conditions Definitely
0: expectations. Uh, I Mm. definitely agree with you with changing the variables, change one variable at a time, because we want to Mm. learn how a tendon responds. And you don't learn anything if you try three things at once and it flares up. It's like, well, what flared it up? You have no idea. So documenting, writing things down, and just being very patient with implementing one thing after another. Uh, With flare-ups, I'd say that I do make sure they aware that flare-ups are a part of rehab and make sure that they do have a a flare-up plan in place but just let them know that when we are rehabbing a tendon we're trying to find this adaptation sweet spot and that like if we under if we hit it too low then it's not gonna trigger any adaptation but if we treat it too aggressively that's when the flare-up happens but we know where the sweet spot is when a flare up does happen because we know okay we're slightly below that right now let's we learn from flare ups and we yeah. as long as we learn from those flare ups and adapt it or modify your treatment as a response to that then yeah. you're just learning along the way and it's it's kind of like a good thing okay now we know yeah. where your ceiling is
1: yeah and not to, as a therapist as a, especially as a junior therapist i felt really bad because i felt things were going well and when you get a flare up you feel sad for the patient and you feel like you're responsible and I think it's just acceptable it's inevitable it's inevitable part of rehabilitation is to get the flare up so you get that with ONEs you get with back pain you get with tendon rehab so for me it's a part of the journey it just makes you 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 appreciate the your success better when you've been through that sort of rough patches so um, as therapists you know it's good to be caring but you know not to get too bogged down when your patients get flare ups because you know that's as long as you pre prewarn them on session 1 uh, because most people can take it as long as they know it's normal Mm-hmm. Uh, that you're not damaging it. So if you tell them it's normal, so the key message is just like we use it with any pain condition, it's normal, it's expected, and uh, it's not causing any structural damage. Uh, just a bit of sensitivity around the tissue because it's just overloaded, and your body just telling you maybe I did too much. And the the key thing which I think this might be highly relevant here is a lot of runners don't tell you their total uh, training load. So I've seen a lot of runners uh, come by and said I had a bad I'm I'm worse. I've not made any change. What they won't be telling you is they've been walking the dogs for four hours, uh, two times a week in the in the weekend. They won't tell you the whole story. So a lot of patients don't tell you the whole load of they do. So sometimes what happens is they're doing the exercise well. They're doing the right rehab, but their other activities in their other areas of the life are spiked up. Or maybe they've started a new job where they are now walking 18,000 steps where they were doing only 5,000 before. So it could be, that's why you need to be like a detective, try to find out all areas of their life how much are they walking so all my patients send me a log a log of the steps and their whole activity for the whole week i I, tr- I, tr- I keep a track of their whole life because as therapists we can just stick to running and gym but humans you know we, we we have to look at the whole package you know what are they doing at home how much are they walking at home how much are they walking in the weekend are they doing like six zoom classes like HIIT training on the top of your exercise so all these things adds up. It's the total load we need to look at. And obviously, the psychological load as well, the sleep and other things. Because sometimes the patient will say, I've didn't, I didn't I do anything, but i got a flat it up. It's not as simple as that. Maybe they've done a lot in the other aspects of their life, which they might not have imagined, you know, they've not thought to let you know. So again, is having that full um, connection with the patient, where they can open up on all aspects of their life, you know, both both in the gym, but in the home and as well as with work aspects, because sometimes it could be nothing to do with the exercise you've given, it's what they're doing in the weekends, you know? So one perfect example, which we wind up would be, I had this plantar fasciitis patient, this is not a runner, but she was like in the late 50s. So uh, she was doing everything I was saying, but she was, she was not getting better at all. So I just scratching my head and finding what, what, what she was she doing? I think I think she was from Nigeria or Ghana and where, because she had a large family show on every Saturday, She used to do like is group cooking for the whole family and just freeze them. And she used to cook for about nine hours standing uh, barefoot. So that was the trigger. And there's no way, uh, you know, so I was digging my head and finding what was, why was she not getting better? But she never told me. And finally, I, uh, you know, found what was she doing the weekend? So sometimes there are some facts which they don't tell you. Which could be one of the reasons things are not improving. So maybe they're doing something crazy in the weekend, or they're just going six hours walk, or uh, some speed work with the dogs, or some back-to-back, uh, you know, Zoom classes. So we need to know the whole story so that we can uh, give their appropriate advice. Because patients sometimes compartmentalize uh, treatment; they just say some things to physio, they don't think they need to. We need to know the whole story. But yeah. as therapists, we need to we need to the whole life, isn't it? We can't yeah. compartmentalize this work and physio and running and things like that.
0: I think a lot of the clients might not know that certain parts of their life are important when it comes to the rehab. Like you said, the cooking and I do find they could be logging their mileage. They could be logging their speed. They could be logging their steps per day, but it's not until you find out that they're, sitting longer or going for longer drives or stuck in traffic where the proximal hamstring might start getting irritated. Or like you said, even just standing still can be a lot of load through plantar fascia and they, they're just not aware. So they don't share that information until people go digging and actually trying to work out uh, what they're doing outside of their their exercise.
1: Yeah, brilliant. And as I said, is for, for, it's, uh, for me, it's the whole package, isn't it? Like your life, we can't compartmentalize. Your, the load is the load, whether it's a physical load, psychological load, as well as workload the body uh, acts as one unit so it's really important to get that uh, confidence. and sometimes it might take a few sessions before they open up uh, you know they feel like it's 11 so i guess you learn with the experience that this the as a therapist you know you're only doing exercise for that half an hour is that what happens Is that 23.5 hours later that's equally important if not more important than actually what you're doing with the rehab isn't it hmm?
0: yeah very very yeah. true uh we're going to finish up here because we're out of time uh the <laughs> Before we actually started recording, you mentioned that you had a shockwave module on, which I find um, uh, coincides really well with this episode. Do you want to tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things is I've been teaching for three, four years. Is a lot of international, like when I, when I taught in uh, Holland and Belgium, there there's a huge interest in online stuff, as you know. And nowadays, there's a an, uh, market and there's a need where people want to see the hands-on. So what I've done is I linked up with physio tutors and created like an eight hours comprehensive. Um, uh, online model where i go through all the conditions in detail obviously make it uh, with the latest evidence the protocol so i share pretty much everything i do in my clinic all the protocols um, and even i've included ultrasound imaging so it basically you know rather than coming all the way to london to attend one of my courses you could pretty much sit in your uh, anywhere in the world and watch the whole thing and there's quizzes involved and also the best thing is is, is accredited as well so you get cpd points as well so the site is study physiotutors.com, study.physiotutors.com. So you can see the course here. And um, so I think this has been like eight years in his making. So what I thought was try to give a high quality uh, a forum because there's a lot of misinformation on Shockwave. So I try to take the best evidence and share uh, the exact protocols which are used with my patients, all the conditions which I mentioned. And hopefully that can be benefit of uh, patients. So for me, it's a it's a small important tool, but again, it's knowing when to use it and how to use it. And the most important thing is the advice and the protocol you give after. So for me, the post, post-treatment post advice which I share in the module is uh, as important because anybody can look on the internet and see the protocols. It's how we put it together. That's the main thing which takes, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, I guess it's a trial and error. But as I said, is you don't have to do the mistakes. I did. Um, and uh, hopefully you might find that uh, useful, uh, If especially if you're using Shockwave in your clinics. And it's quite common in UK, I think, a lot of clinics offer that. I don't know the situation in Australia. Is that common there?
0: Uh at the clinic I did work at last year, hmm. we definitely had shockwave. And uh, around the the other clinics that I would attend, they're starting to roll some out. There'd probably be about 50% of uh modern clinics would have shockwave. Yeah,
1: I'd so, say it's a fairly common common treatment, as I said, is it's a simple treatment and uh and it's been around for 40 years, and I'm sure it's here to stay as long as you know we know his limitations and Pick up the right patients. It's a good, uh, for somebody, you know, m- 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 my sort of the way I look at it is if you are, th- if you're physio dealing with a lot of lower limb rehab, especially tendon rehab, it's a useful adjunct which can help in certain patients, uh, you know, because we need to, the more tools you have in your toolbox, uh, it might be a good option, especially if they're struggling with that. So it's not a magic fix, but again, it's, uh, you know, relevant for certain people and it's good to have that option. And also, Runners are very clued on. More and more patients they call up and say, "Have you got shock fever?" Well, I read upon the internet that it's good for Achilles tendon and So more and more patients are seeking for it. So uh, clinics uh, are realizing the need to have that. In the setting to offer that and if you have good quality you know clinical reasoning and good quality rehab 12 weeks after that is going to really help you uh, with your uh, uh, outcome so if you're just giving shockwave in isolation uh, you'll be disappointed because nothing works in isolation in uh, chronic tendon disorders
0: yeah well said and i'll definitely include those the links to the physio yeah. tutors module in the show notes yeah. while we're on that topic i know you are very active on twitter do you want to share uh, those or other social media handles yeah
1: yeah, so I'm I'm on most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. So uh, my handle is at Function to Fitness, uh, with only one S at the end. And uh, yeah, feel free to uh, question. So for me, I think I you know I for me it's just uh I I got into shockwave purely as a, a frustration with my runners and hip patients. So I wouldn't say like it's a very technically or very complex area. Again, it's knowing the reasoning. For for me, I. When patients look into shockwave as something huge or big, i trying to downplay it. For me, it's a useful adjunct, but it's very simple. So let's not make it bigger than it is. And it's uh, where I find many places underused and sometimes is overused. So it's something which can be useful in certain patients. So I'm more than happy to take queries um, if you have on Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, and hopefully uh, that can be useful in your uh, clinical work.
0: Thank you. Very appreciate that. And I want to thank you. You've been very generous with your time, very generous with sharing the amount of knowledge that you have. And just it's I can tell the amount of passion, the amount of expertise. You can just go on and on talking about this all day. Uh, So thank you very much for taking the time and sharing all the knowledge that you do have. And thanks for joining us on the Run Smarter podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks once again for listening. To take full advantage of the knowledge you are building, you need to download the Run Smarter app. This contains all of my free access podcast episodes, written blogs and ebooks, along with my paid video courses, all neatly housed into categories for you to easily navigate through and find content you're interested in. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for links to the podcast Facebook group and links to learn more about becoming a podcast patron who contribute five Aussie dollars per month to get inner circle VIP access, including an invitation into the exclusive patron Facebook group and a complete back catalogue of patron-only podcast episodes, which you can access within the app. Also on the app, you can even find a link that takes you to my online physio clinic, where I assess and treat runners from all over the world, so I can be on standby if you ever need one-on-one physiotherapy assistance. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter Scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.